0: Yeah. This is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Sleep. Never retreat. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast where we take a deep dive into the training and racing of some of America's best marathoners as they prepare for the Olympic Trials on February 29th in Atlanta, and I am so excited to have Mariah Earle on the podcast today. She finished third at the California International Marathon just a few short weeks ago, but not only that, she is a master's runner who took a significant amount of time off from running, reengage with it, and here she is, kicking butt and improving at an age where a lot of people think that their best running days are behind them, especially people who had you know, reached a certain level earlier in their career, as Mariah has Forget that, man. She is kicking butt and she is just getting better and better recently. And I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Last week was a huge week on the podcast. We actually dropped three episodes and one of them gained a lot of attention. That was the one with Peter Promka. If you haven't listened to it yet, please do. Peter, uh, as expected was an absolutely phenomenal guest. And, you know, he got a little emotional in the podcast as he should. It touched a lot of people's hearts. That episode was shared. Broadly, it was, it was without question, one of the most, if not the most popular episode we've had on this podcast stream. With that said, we had two other episodes that dropped last week and they were both really good. So if you haven't listened to the CJ Albertson episode or the Laura Thweet episode, please go back and listen to them because I really think you're going to enjoy them. Those were two episodes when I, when I recorded them, I was like, all right, these are going to be great. These are just so good. Such interesting people with, um, uh, you know, just with just wonderful stories to share. So if you haven't listened to Lore or CJ's, please go back and give that a listen. I know Peter's episode really got so much attention, but I think those other ones were just as good as well. So with that said, here is my conversation with Mariah Earl. Mariah, welcome to the show. And first of all, congratulations. What a weekend you just had.
1: Uh, thank you so much. Um, I think I'm still recovering from the weekend, but... Um I had a great time.
0: Yeah, you just you were just telling me offline that you had like think like the the typical post marathon sickness that hit you on Tuesday. It's funny, I'm doing a lot of these um post CIM podcasts and everyone I'm talking to after the race I think has all come down with like the post marathon flu.
1: Yeah, that's so funny. I thought it was something I picked up on the plane. I had the unfortunate situation of having middle seats both on the way there and the way back and On the way there, the the woman and the man next to me were coughing and sneezing. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to get sick before the race. But uh, at least it held off till afterwards.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't wouldn't that be something else to get sick on the way to the marathon? I'm sure people have done it. But what a bummer that that would have been. Yeah. On the other hand, you had pretty much the opposite experience. You (laughs) just had a wonderful race, 234, 35 finished third. You're also a master's runner. So getting third for master's runner in a major marathon is certainly atypical. So I guess first things first, what was your experience like the week of the race when you were trying to prepare for how you were planning on running it and what kind of fitness you thought you were in?
1: yeah that was a hard decision actually. I, I obviously wanted to go out this past weekend and get my OTQ, which would have you know taken under a 245 which is no easy feat in itself. my my previous best going into this race was 24614 and I did done that at Boston um, last April. So I sort of felt like the 245 was within my range. I'd done a lot more tempo work going into this marathon and had some really really great half marathons leading up to the CIM race. So I was kind of trying to decide whether I just wanted to try to sneak under 245 and play it a little safe, even though that wasn't going to be easy. Like, that's still a really hard time to run. I've never ran that fast before. Or whether I wanted to kind of test, test my fitness and see Um, what I could maybe do in this race and how fast I could go. But, you know, there was a risk doing that, that if I went all out that I might blow up and um, not even get my 245. And so I didn't want that either. Uh, So that was sort of my thought process going in. And I think um, ultimately I kind of sat down and I thought about it and I realized that I wasn't going to be happy with – like I I played the scenario through in my mind. Like if I cross that finish line and I run 244, 30 – Am I going to be happy with that? And I think ultimately, like I knew that I wasn't going to be okay with with just sneak it under. That I wanted to see what I could do. So I decided I was gonna gonna test myself. But I was okay with blowing up because you can't you can't really gamble. I, at least I don't gamble unless I'm willing to lose everything. I'm actually a terrible gambler. I think I went up a dollar in a hand of poker and cashed out because I didn't want to lose my dollar. But um, I I definitely went into this race thinking I'm going to give it what I have, and if it goes badly, it goes badly, and I can live with that. But I would rather live with that than live with um, just barely getting under and not knowing what I could do.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned the half marathons earlier this year. So in March you had, you ran a 119 uh, in San Diego and then June up in um, Minnesota, you ran a 115 as well. Were there other half marathons that you ran? I'm, I'm looking through some of the, you know, I printed up some of your results and things like that. You never, it's hard to find a comprehensive list.
1: Sure. The 119 in March was, um, I was injured the week before. Like I, I got hurt during my Boston buildup. I tend to have really bad Achilles problems. And I had a episode where I couldn't run for about 10 days. So I went into that 119 in March, just um, trying to get a good race in. I didn't want to put, there's a big, big hill in that race, like right around mile nine and 10. And that puts a lot of strain on your Achilles. So I kind of had an excuse to not push the hill. And I took that race just to you know, get back into training. Um, then grandma's was in June and that was a 115.09. And that was a huge shock for me. I didn't think that I was quite ready to go low 115s. And then um, in November, early November, in my buildup to CIM, I ran a 113.27 here in San Diego. And so like after that race, I kind of felt like maybe I was ready to go low 240s in the marathon.
0: So if 115 was a shock, what did it feel like after you ran 113?
1: It was it was definitely a, a bigger shock. I mean, I feel like this whole year has just been one finish line surprise after another. I mean, I I think I, I don't, every time I look up when I'm crossing I've, I've been setting new and new P, newer PRs and going beyond what I thought I was capable of. And so I know it's going to end. Like I know the last PR will be coming and probably coming pretty soon, but it's been a lot of fun. The 113, um, the course had a little bit of downhill at the beginning, and then it flattens out for the last eight miles. So I knew it was a fast course. It was also the first race I'd ran in the Nike Vaporfly Next Percents. And I got to say, I crossed the finish line feeling a little bit like I cheated. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, it was – there were signs in my training that I could hold a 230-something pace for a lot longer than I could ever hold that pace. So um, it was – sort of in my wheelhouse. But, you know, in these races like this, these long races like the half marathon and the marathon, you find yourself kind of in no man's land a lot where you're you're running a pace and it's a pace you've never ran before. And you play this game of like, well, how long can I keep this up? So um, in the half marathon, I think I was actually running a little faster than 213 pace for the first 10 or 11 miles. And then the last two miles, I sort of lost it. But it was Definitely a shock that it could hold on even for that long.
0: So you were in a pretty unique position coming into CIM where there's obviously a large, you know, especially for compared to most races, a large contingent of men and women who are trying to get their OTQ at that race. However, unlike the the vast majority of those people... You know, you were obviously capable of running far under the two forty five line. So so what was it like for you at the starting line, trying to decide where you were going to you know where you were going to stand, how you were going to approach say the first five miles or so, and just just logistically how that was going to work because you had you know such a large number of women who were also looking to OTQ but maybe were going to come in at a a little bit of a different pace than you were projecting.
1: Right. Well. I, I had to brace myself for this race for being in a field like that because I feel like most of my marathons, I've either been like in a huge race like Boston, and in Boston I've always started in Corral 5 or Corral 6 of the first wave, so I've been like way back, or I've been in smaller marathons where there wasn't a, a big crowd of, of fast women like this. So I kind of braced myself for the start of this race to where like, you're going to get passed by a lot of people at the start. I, I I knew I wasn't in the top eight. They lined the top eight for CIM at the very front of the starting line, but I figured I could tuck in right behind them, which I did. I got to the starting line early and was in the second row from the start. Um, but then there's also a lot of people behind you, like men especially, who have run well under 240, who just aren't in the elite field because, you know, the men's elite field is much faster, obviously. But um, So I kind of braced myself for this wave of people that were was going to pass me uh, the first mile or two and told myself to stay calm and be patient. And I had had the good fortune the night before the race of having dinner sitting right next to Shadrach Bawat. And I didn't actually, it was embarrassing. I didn't know who he was at the time. I kind of found out over the course of our conversation that this man I was talking to was a world-class marathon runner who'd finished third of the Boston Marathon. And, you know, shame on me for not knowing instantly who he was. Um, But I picked his brain a little bit about the course. And, you know, one of the things he really emphasized was, you know, hold back that first mile. It's really hard to hold back that first mile, but um, try to slow yourself down and and you got to run even splits on this course. And by even splits he um, emphasized like even heart rate and keeping an even effort. So that kind of is what I focused on that first five miles when, you know, you're fresh, your legs are tapered and rested. That first mile is the most generous downhill you could ever. Like I told, even when we were warming up before the race, I told a couple of my friends, um, gosh, wouldn't you just like to like go all out on this first mile and see what you could do for a mile PR? Because it's just that kind of like gentle downhill that you really just want to take off and fly on. So, I mean, it was really hard to hold back that first mile. I don't I don't really run much by by my watch pace for one thing. I don't trust like the instant read pace very often. Um but I kept looking and I'm like, "Oh man, I'm running 5:30 pace slow down, slow down." Like so I think I came through the first mile in 5:49, which was still a lot faster than I'd really intended to go out, but the effort felt smooth and I, I mean, it felt like I was jogging. Like that's how fast that first mile is. So, the rest of the first five miles, I tried to um, keep an even effort, keep a relaxed pace. Um, and by pace, I mean more the turnover of my legs to try to run efficiently and not worry so much about what the watch said.
0: Yeah. So do you work with a coach that helps you that you now either during your training or the week of to kind of. As someone who, you know, besides just having the good fortune of sitting next to Shadrach B. the night before a race, who's who's able to like, you know, work with you to kind of design either these, you know, your, your training plans and or your race strategy.
1: So I don't have a coach. I did ask um, Jen Rines to write me a training program specifically for CIM. So last August, she sent me this like brilliant um, weeks of training program for me that had a lot of threshold work in it. But as far as, like, determining pace and things like that, I was kind of on my own. Um, and I, I don't, like I said, I don't use my watch a lot. I don't even look at my splits most of the time after my runs. I kind of clear the watch as soon as I finish and don't go back and see what pace I ran. But I, I do, for for track workouts, um, look at what I come through, like, my quarter splits in to make sure that I'm running an honest pace. Uh, but as far as determining pace for the marathon... Uh, I I kinda hadn't. I kind of just ran off of feel.
0: All right. So let's first of all, Jen is amazing. I've actually had her on my other podcast, The Rambling Runner, and she is going to be in a special episode on this podcast feed. We're gonna record it next week. It'll probably pop up in like three weeks or so. So just to you know, drop it drop in hints on, on a future episode. But before we talk about the race, which obviously is a hallmark moment for you and your running career your running career specifically is not of the linear fashion that a lot of, you know, a lot of runners experience. So I think one of the, the key things with, with, you know, just like looking back in time and preparing for this episode and learning more about you and, and all of that, it's funny you go on like some of these websites that will detail your races because it's like, do you want the 2008, nineteen results, 18 results, 2017 results, or the 1999 results? And you're like, wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> there's, there's this huge gap here. What's going on? So let's talk about, you know, the, the early part of your career. Um, you know, kind of what was going on with you in terms of your goals, what you were trying to achieve and, you know, what caused a, you know, a a gap in terms of your, some of your, your racing and your, your, you know, pursuing goals within the sport.
1: Yeah. So in college, I was a 800 meter runner primarily. Uh, I started out in high school as a 200, 400 girl, And it's funny, I keep getting longer in the distances as I get older. But um, in college, I was really focused on I wanted to make NCAAs and I knew I had to run like 206 to 208 to probably have a shot at that. And I had a 210 PR as a sophomore and never managed to get any faster after my sophomore year. And I think a lot of that was I I just was a head case. (laughs) Um, My coaches actually had me see a sports psychiatrist for a while because I was running great, great workouts that indicated I was ready to go beyond 210. And yet I would get into races and like I either wouldn't finish or I would (laughs) – I think at Stanford Relays one year I came through the 400 in 59 seconds – And then came home the second 400 in about 145 or something ridiculous like that. So I definitely was not a great competitor. um, And I had to really work on my mental aspect of the sport. Uh, But after college, I think I kind of thought that I wish someone had told me that there were these great club sports. And maybe they did and I didn't listen. But I sort of thought like, well, if after college you're not picking up a Nike sponsorship then that's it. You're done. Like maybe you can go run some like fun run 5Ks or whatever. But um, unless you're a world-class athlete, there is no life in running after college. And I come to find out that's not true. <laughs> but um, in my, so I kind of just didn't run after afterwards. I would, you know, occasionally go out for, you know, 20 to 30 minute, just shakeout run or um, just go get some exercise, but I definitely didn't train. It was just more of sporadic here and there going out for jogs. And I'd go like six to eight months without even putting on my running shoes during that time span. And then around 35, I got the idea to, like some of my friends had ran marathons and I thought, oh, it might be kind of fun. Like, let's just do a marathon to to finish one and to say, we've done it. We'll check that off the bucket list and then never do it again. We'll go back to being just a normal, you know, healthy athlete that doesn't kill themselves. But, um, so I started training for rock and roll San Diego. Cause that was a local marathon and I had two goals and one was to run it under four hours <laughs> because, uh, my best friend who was a collegiate 400 meter runner for UCLA, she had run a marathon and she had broken four hours. And I figured if a 400 meter runner, uh, can break four hours, then an 800 meter runner should also be able to break four hours. So, and the other goal I had was to do it without walking. So I did. I went out and ran Rock and Roll San Diego. I trained maybe with a maximum. I think I peaked at like forty or to forty five miles in my training, and I went out and I ran a three sixteen, and I didn't walk <laughs>
0: just under the four hour mark. Just got yeah. under it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't know because I had it. I ran with like a twelve dollar Timex. There was no GPS on it or anything like that, and I didn't, didn't look. I just ran. I just ran from the start to the finish, and I looked up and saw the clock when I came through, and I was like, okay. <laughs>
0: so you as you mentioned you were primarily you know an 800 meter runner why was that the distance that worked best for you at that time you know when i say that time i mean you know you know in college and early 20s why, why was that the distance that you preferred
1: I think I had it in my head and in, that I wasn't a distance runner. And I think I'd always had that in my head. Like I ran cross country in junior high and high school and I was terrible. I mean, I would I would sit down on the course in, in junior high and in high school. I don't think I ever made it through a course without walking. Like I just thought that anything – I thought I was a sprinter. I mean, I started out wanting to I, – I actually anchored the four by one also in high school. Like I thought that was my wheelhouse and – I broke 60 in the 400 in high school, um, so I really thought that my strength was in the speeds, and it turned out I was okay at the 800 as I got older, and I think that I guess I just didn't know. I mean, a long run back then was six miles, so I had never really trained that sort of cardiovascular endurance system that a lot of people had, and... I guess I just, I didn't know that I could go further than 800 meters and maybe I couldn't back then. Cause I really feel like distance running is something you develop over years and years and years and not just over one season, but it never occurred to me, I guess, to go more than two laps around the track that seemed far enough.
0: And with that said, I mean, you ran, ended up running a 3:16 marathon without the years and years and years of, of preparation, you know, just had that one, that one uh, cycle building up to it. So when you were making the decision to run that marathon and as you were preparing, especially in the early stages of your buildup, what do you think attracted you to that distance? Because, you know, from just a more traditional running perspective um, outside of the ultra running world, you, know, you basically made one of the largest leaps you could possibly make from a, from a running perspective. Um, so why wasn't there a middle ground to start with?
1: because i think it was more of just a novelty race for me it wasn't something that i intended to like keep doing and pursue as a as a realistic distance I, it's kind of like one of those things like haha let's just go run a marathon you know um it was really just a bucket list item i didn't think it was anything i would ever be good at and i didn't expect to do more than one of them you know the marathon is just this big grand goal that you see more and more just average average athlete's doing you know everyone runs marathons these days it gets all the glory um and you don't have to have been a collegiate athlete to do that which is what's been one of the greatest things about this sport is everyone's still going out there and competing and having fun and being part of this like wonderful community and I think that is what drew me to it this unattainable goal that was out there that seemed like almost ridiculous to go run 26 miles without stopping as someone who once had to sit down twice running a mile in PE so um it was kind of just the idea of of doing it because it was there, but then never wanting to do it again. <laughs>
0: right. You took the words right out of my mouth. So you finished your marathon, right? And then obviously you did do it again. So what was the what 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 sort of mindset shift did you have that brought you from, all right, this is just, you know, I'll do this on a lark. I'm doing it because this distance is so atypical for me. You know what I mean? Basically, all signs are pointing to, you know, kind of like a one-hit wonder type feel to the marathon. Why did that turn out not to be the case? Well, because
1: being in the race itself, I had so much fun running that race, other than, like, the end when I think I threw my oatmeal up all over the finish line. But I, I did it with a smile, and I had really, really enjoyed being out there in this sea of people that were all trying to achieve the same goal and encouraging you to, to get to the finish. Like, I had a blast doing it, and I realized how much i missed the running community and how much i missed competitive running and training so i started looking for like running groups and thinking that again i wasn't planning on doing any more marathons i thought like well let's just go train for maybe some 5k's and 10k's like some shorter distances that might be fun and i'd love to find a group to train with on the track so i actually put in like track club into google and i found the san diego track club and that they also had a Tuesday night track workout that was about eight miles from my house. So I started, I actually was like, terrified to ask to join the team. I, I went to where, the, the place where they were holding their workouts and kind of spied on them for a session. Uh, it was They were actually doing cross-country workouts at a lake. And so I knew where the lake was, and I went out at the same time they were having practice and sort of ran in the opposite direction around this lake, kind of checking them out to see if they seemed like nice people. And one of the women in the group said hi to me and told me I was running for, like, she's like, you're running great, like, good job. And so then I decided they were okay, and I went over and introduced myself. And, like, from that point on, I think I've missed, like, two workouts on Tuesday night because it was just such a, such a wonderful group of people. I actually coach that group now years later, but... Um, I started running with them and training for, you know, I would do these like VO2 max type workouts on Tuesday nights and started seeing some of the stuff that they were doing. And I, you know, some of the older, like there, there were some masters women in the group that were running marathons and doing Ironman competitions. And I thought, well, this is really cool that they can go out and do that. And um, eventually I kind of got drawn back into that distance of, you know, let's do a 15 mile long run on Saturdays. And actually, when I started doing my 15 mile long runs on Saturdays, my 5k time dropped significantly. I started making the connection between high mileage and faster times. And you know, before you know it, you're running 50, 60 miles a week and you know, why not do another marathon? And people started talking about this thing called the Boston Marathon. And I knew I'd qualified for Boston after my first one, even though I didn't know what that was at the time. Someone came up to me after my first marathon and said, oh, you qualified for Boston. And I was like, well, what's that? Is that? I mean, I knew what the Boston Marathon was, but I didn't know that qualifying for it was a thing that people tried to do. Um, so I started hearing more, more and more people talk about the Boston Marathon, and Decided that maybe I'd like to give that a shot because it looked like a lot of fun. And that's kind of what got me back into the marathon again after a couple years of, I guess, a year and a half of track workouts and thinking I would never do a marathon again.
0: So you were at this interesting spot where you had, in some ways... You know a lot of running experience, right? You are a college runner, like you mentioned, like you're you're running really well in, in, in at the high school level. Here you are at like Stanford relays, like this is a very like traditional high level running kind of background that you'd see for someone, you know, in that age, you know, say the twenty twenty two age group, and yet here you are, you know, over a decade later, like oh, you have to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Like in some ways, you were like on living in like two different worlds at the same time of like this experienced runner on one level. And then someone who, um, you know, is, is very much a novice in terms of their understanding of this new venture that you are trying, which is so, I can imagine being so exciting because it's almost like, you know, you're here, you are doing something that you've done for a long time, but at the same point, experiencing new things constantly within this sport and it must just have been like a whirlwind for you especially considering how much you improved in such a short period of time.
1: Well, yeah, definitely. And I think part of coming back at this age and doing longer distances is that every race is, you know, every distance I have a shot at PR again because I don't have collegiate times really for the 10K or the half marathon or the marathon. Um, I did run some five K's for cross country, which I've already blown those times away because like I said, I was terrible at cross country and I didn't think I could do distance. Um, that being said, I don't think I will ever go back on the track and try to run an 800 because I would probably cry when I saw my time now. But <laughs> um, it has been a lot of fun to tackle this. It is, it's is—it's almost like a new sport because, like I said back then, I considered myself like, you know, distance runner was a dirty word. Like, I'm not a distance runner. I'm not, I'm not one of those crazy people that goes out and runs for hours and hours. And uh, lo and behold, I am. At least in my 40s, I am. I don't think I had the mentality for it back then, but... Um, It's been a really, really good experience. It's been a lot of fun to come out and run these longer distances as I'm older.
0: And what has changed in terms of your thinking about, you know, potential, right? You mentioned many times that, you know, at, at a young age that you didn't think that you were capable of doing certain things and that, you know, you weren't that kind of runner and so on and so forth. And then, you know, here you are obviously proving those statements to be incorrect. So how has your view on potential as an athlete changed over time?
1: Well, I think one thing I've learned, not just as an athlete, but just, you know, as as a human maturing and growing up is that you never really know what you're capable of. Like this world will surprise you all the time. And, you know, that can go both ways. You may be capable of some terrible things and some great things. But um, the thing with distance running and is that your hard work will pay off. Like you may have bad races here and there. It may take a while. But the more you put into the sport, the more you run, the more you train, like the more you're going to see results. And obviously you have to balance that with, you know, you don't want to break down your body too much. There's injuries and there are genetic limits to what we can do. But um, until I hit that limit, I'm going to keep, I don't know, I guess you don't really know when you hit that limit, but I think that why even worry about what your potential is? You know, why not just keep trying and enjoying the process and seeing if you can get better?
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. Because you have that there's, you know, the kind of like that, those different points where potential and what you can and can't do can really, you know, be a potential burden. Right. You have that that kind of before you try something view of it, like, oh, I could never do that. You know, why even try it? And then these other views, which I think you just intimated, which is like, okay, like why even ponder what you're capable of doing? Just keep doing it and see where it takes you. And it's funny because, you know, the idea of limits or what am I capable of type conversation, it seems like for the vast majority of us that those kinds of introspective moments almost always are, you know, turn out to be more of the negative side than the positive side. Because it can be almost like a self-limiting type conclusion as opposed to like, I'm capable of doing so much more because, you know, that idea oftentimes can be rooted in faith as opposed to some sort of evidence-based thing. Because if it was evidence-based, well, you wouldn't need introspection to figure it out.
1: Exactly. One of the things I've really taken to heart with, especially my racing and also my training, is that, you know, a friend of mine said to me that before a big race that we were both nervous about that, she was just going to go out there and run her little heart out. And I thought that was so cute, but it's so poignant and so true. Like all we can ever do when we go out there is is give everything we have. And that's also a little scary because what if you give everything you have and you're not happy with the results? Um, so it's really important, I think, to be in the mindset of knowing that uh, just you know, literally giving a hundred percent, giving it everything you have, is all we can ever ask of ourselves, and and it's a pretty unique challenge in itself just to go out there and accept that you gave it everything you had, and and this is what you got, and you're, to live with that and be happy is is great.
0: And going back to the marathon, giving everything you have can be a hard target, especially you know in the first say two thirds of a race because you should be feeling relatively good during that time. So going back to CIM, after mile five, you talked about how your initial pacing strategy worked out, that 5.49 first mile, which considering the downhill, must have taken a considerable effort to kind of like basically run with the parking brake on a little bit for you. After that, that initial downhill and you're kind of in the rollers, what were you gauging your effort on and were you conscious of where those top eight women were, um, in relation to, you know, obviously you stood, you started right behind them. Were you conscious of where they were, say like from like mile five to 13 or so?
1: Not really. In fact, I remember at some point in the race, people on the sidelines started telling me and this other woman I was running with, like you're five and six, your numbers five and six, And I remember thinking, well, that can't be right. Like, because there were so many people that passed me at the start. And I I didn't know, I I figured I was like top 20 at that point. I didn't think I was in top 10. Um, So it wasn't until like after hearing that for a few miles, I was like, well, they can't all be wrong. (laughs) So Like they're not all miscounting by that much. But I, I, for a long, long time when I was hearing the placings they were telling us, I was like, this isn't right. Like, I don't, I don't think that's accurate. Um, But I, I, I'm not really sure when it was that I realized that this is happening and I'm, I'm probably going to finish in the top 10.
0: And when you had that moment where, okay, this, this is real. I am, you know, in the top handful of runners here. When did you start, potentially changing if you did it all start changing your either goals for the race or how you were trying to um, strategize your pacing schedule or you know things like that you know maybe going from you know trying to pace yourself to maybe more of a racing situation where you're just trying to beat some people in front of you to get on the podium where was the the shift for you both mentally and physically in terms of where were you in the race when things maybe started to change
1: I think for a long time in the race I kept waiting to blow up because I came through the half at like my fourth fastest half marathon time ever it was like a 117 11 I think is what the official half split was. So I saw that and I remember thinking two things like one wow well, I hope hope I don't like self destruct here and also like I hope people back home who are tracking me aren't freaking out because I don't feel that bad. I felt a little bit like nauseous coming through the half. But it's so funny with these races because there really are like races within races within races. Like I went through so many phases of I feel good to I feel like I'm getting a little sick to my stomach or I feel dizzy, but now I feel good again. So you kind of have to just like sit through whatever phase your body is feeling at that moment and trust that you're going to either recover or sustain Um but It wasn't, I didn't really feel like I was racing this race for a podium spot until maybe the last 10K, like coming through mile 20, 21. And I realized that I still felt good and, and I felt like I wanted to push and pick it up, but I was hesitant because I know like, you know, six miles is a long way to go. And I've never felt that in a race before, like in a marathon, I've never felt good. Like usually by mile 20, 21, I'm just holding on. So I was kind of waiting for the ball to drop, like, when, is it, when am I going to hit this wall? When am I going to start to feel bad? And I think I passed. Like I knew at this point I'd heard a lot of your three and four to, with me and the Canadian I was running with. Um, and at that point, around 21 is when I would passed her, and I looked at my, my split for that mile, and it wasn't really any faster. It was still in that realm of like 553 to 557 or whatever it was I'd been hitting. Um, so I realized like I wasn't picking it up really, but she must have slowed down a little bit. So, I kind of realized at that point that maybe if I could push a little bit, and like, I think I told someone else this. Like, it sounds terrible, but like, I was hoping to like make her think I wasn't tired, so that she wouldn't try to come back and come after me. So I, I did kind of push for maybe 800 to 1k there. Just picked up the pace, probably to like 5:49 pace. I think there was one mile in there where I split a 5:49, and I'm sure that was it. Where I was thinking like, let's just put some distance and try to kind of shut her down so she doesn't come after me and I remember thinking like this is kind of cool like I'm implementing race strategy in the last five miles of a marathon and I've never I've never raced a marathon before it's always been just go out there and try to PR um, or try to finish but it's never been like let's race for a podium spot let's see what kind of strategy we can put into play and try to hold on to this and um, luckily it worked out but um I, yeah, that was when I think I knew that I was most probably going to finish in the top 10. And I had a really good shot at this podium. If I could just not, if nothing goes wrong, (laughs) if nothing goes wrong between now and the finish line, I think I got this. And then at mile 25, my right calf started cramping. And I was like, oh no, I think I said out loud, like, no, no. And um, I had to kind of change my form a little bit to get through that last mile. But it still ended up being my fastest mile of the day. My last mile, my marathon was a a 543 or a 544, I think. And, um, and I felt like I could have gone faster if I hadn't been trying to keep that calf from blowing up on me, but it was a lot of fun.
0: Now, when you started getting into racing mode, obviously that's like an exciting place to be. Did you feel like that shift in your mindset was able, were you able to kind of like, Deal with the 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 typical marathon uncomfortable feelings within your whole body like a little bit better because you had this new and external focus.
1: Yeah, I, I actually started to feel like I feel in my workouts. Like when I get when you have a cut down run and you're supposed to get faster and faster every mile, and you get to that last like three or four miles of your cut down or two miles of your cut down, and you start to feel like you can push because the end is in sight. I kind of started to feel like that. And it felt more just like, you know, another day at the office, almost like, let's just, let's just push and see if we can measure out our energy perfectly so that we can still finish this race, but finish it stronger than we started it. Um, And that was pretty exciting. It was a pretty, you start to get hungry at that point for the finish. Like you just really want to nail this. And um, I always say to my athletes when they're training, like, on their last rep, like, let's like, like, just put it away, put it away, put a fork in this workout, like, let's just get it done. And I started to kind of get that feeling in the race, like, oh, man, I just really want to put this race away. I just really want to bring it home hard. And um, I couldn't quite do that as much as I wanted because I was worried about the calf the last mile. But um, it was definitely the most fun I've ever had in a race. And of course I'm probably remembering this a lot better than it actually was at the moment. I think when you look back on good races, you sort of forget a little bit about how much it hurt. (laughs) Uh, it was, it was a new experience for me.
0: So that like I, the tiger kind of mentality, it's so exciting to hear about, right. You can take that left turn, you, you know, you run towards the finish line there, you know, the, the 200 meters or so. And I've seen plenty of photographs of you. Once you cross the line. And it's clear what, as soon as you cross that, you know, that eye of the tiger mentality quickly faded away because, you know, it is these wonderfully emotional photos after the fact of, you know, it seems like, and I'd love to hear your own perspective, but looking at the photos like this, this mix of like joy and I can't believe what just happened.
1: And there was a lot of, I like, can't believe what just happened and <laughs> still that I still can't believe it happened, but. I think like coming in, I didn't, I knew, I mean, math is really hard when you're running a marathon. So I knew my splits were all under six minutes, except for the second mile, I think was a 6.01. But so I knew I I I had my 245. I was pretty sure coming around, like I saw the sign that said 400 meters to go. And I was like, I got this, I got this. And I was pretty sure it was like around 240 or under. And it wasn't until I like took that last turn and I could see the clock that it said like 233 on it. And so I think there's some photos that I really like where I'm coming in the last 50 meters and like, there's this big smile on my face. And I was very much aware that I was smiling when I crossed the finish line because I couldn't, could not believe what was happening. I couldn't believe it It was, I got my A standard. I was finishing on the podium. Like I, I daydream a lot when I run, especially on my easy runs. And so Every now and then when I'm daydry- daydreaming, I have to um, calm myself down because I'll start to get, like, teary-eyed on my easy five-mile run through the trails because I'm imagining, you know, whatever. But uh, this was beyond what I'd imagined. I-, I think in my, like, wildest dreams at CIM, I'd finished in the top 10 and ran, like, a 238. <laughs> so uh, this was incredible. Um, I crossed the finish line, and, yeah, I just kind of, like, was able to start slowly taking it in and then and then they give you the american flag and i think i've really lost it when they gave me the american flag like that's one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me in my entire life and um i was standing there at the finish and like holding this flag and like looking around at uh, this situation i was finding myself in it was so surreal and one of the race directors says to me, like, um, where's your crew? Like, where are your people? And I said to him, like, they're all out there. They're all running this race. Like, all my friends are out there running this race. A lot of them OTQ'd. Um, and it just, I just felt so, so, like, special to be a part of this. Um I did also at that moment look over on the sidelines and there was a woman, um, her name is Amy Halseth. She's from San Diego. She runs for one of the competitive teams here and she's an amazing masters runner. She was out there to support all of us. And so like I saw her and I lost it again because it was like someone that I could share this moment with that knew what I was experiencing. And, you know, she was a member of my running tribe. Like she's a member of my running community here in San Diego. So I gave her like the biggest hug and, we kind of both, like, sat there in awe. <laughs> like, we can't believe, like, we're here and ev- and everyone's OTQing and everyone's having a great race. And, um, I mean, and that's another thing. I'm sure you've seen the photos of the women coming in under 245.
0: Oh, my goodness. They're amazing.
1: Oh, I, I still – I get chills and I, get, I tear up when I see their faces coming in because – everyone out there, I mean, this is something I've always said about the marathon. It is one of the only places in the world where everyone, not just on the course, but on the sidelines, you know, put directing the race, everyone wants to see you succeed. It's such a positive environment. Like everyone is cheering for you. Everyone wants to see success stories. There's nobody out there like hoping you fail or like giving you the side eye. You know, it's just, it's just this big, big community of of people wanting to see success and wanting to see positive things in the world. And I can't think of any other situation in the world that's like that. Um, So, yeah, the women coming in that were just squeaking in under 245, like we were all going nuts. And, like, I think the girl that came in in 244, 58 got, like, bombarded by about 30 of us. And the poor (laughs) people that are trying to organize this race are like, okay, ladies, you need to leave this corral area. Like, please come this way. But it was just such an amazing, like, epic celebration of – of like triumph, like the faces coming through were full of victory and success. And like, you could see like the, the pain of the workouts they'd put in over the last three months, like all of it coming to fruition was just, it was incredible. I I think that, you know, the next Olympics, regardless of whether or not I'm running and training for the trials, like I want to be at the finish line to see, I am, to see these people hitting their times. It was so cool.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It really is. The videos and pictures, it's, it's, it's funny. It's uh, it's just so evocative. Because the emotions, not only of the runners, but the spectators, the entire thing, the entire scene is just amazing. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be interviewing a couple people who were in that crowd um, that you just mentioned. Anne, um, and Ms., and I'm going to mispronounce her last name. And I'm sorry, I've already, already interviewed Anne. Um, Anne Mazur, Anne Mazur, um, who finished uh, around 244.30, and then Katarina Spratford as well. Um, it's just an amazing situation for sure, and it's... You know, it's just iconic. And you just know that people who are in that group are going to manage, who are going to, you know, basically remember that day for the rest of their lives, as I'm sure you will. And now that you have a little distance from the race, you know, just under a week or so, considering that you far exceeded your expectations for that race. What are you thinking about now as you look forward towards the Olympic trials? And we messaged earlier and I am like, hey, are you going to run the trials? Because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And you said, oh, absolutely. You bunch of exclamation points. You're so excited for it. <laughs> How are you viewing that race in terms of what you want to accomplish within your training and on that day specifically?
1: I mean, that's that's a tough question because. For the last, like, eight months, my life has ended on December 8th. Like, I haven't been able to think beyond CIM. So there was a moment when I got back to the hotel after the race, like, I'm laying my head on my pillow where it just kind of hit me, like, oh, crap, I got to start training for the marathon, (laughs) like soon, I have to do this again. But um, so this week, I'm definitely taking the week off this cold, like I think I told you has made it a little bit easier to not run because I I really wasn't that sore from this race. So I know there's a lot of damage done to the the muscles over 26 miles, regardless of whether you feel sore or not. So I really think that everyone needs to take, I wish I could take two weeks off just because I think it's, it's good for the body and soul and mind to recover after a marathon. But Um, My intention is to take off probably through Sunday, Um, and if this cold is cleared out of my lungs, I'm going to start back with some easy running the first week, and the rest is sort of no man's land for me. I got to sit down and look at my last training cycle because You know, I don't think you need to go out and reinvent the wheel when you've had a good race. I think that a lot of people, like, when they have success, they try to take it to the next level and see what else they can do and forget all the basics that got them there. So I'm going to try to avoid that trap. Um, I may reach out to Jen Rines again and see if she'd be willing to, if I could hire her to throw something together for me for the (laughs) next couple months um, because I really don't want to screw it up. It's, it's it's funny how like, I have no problem coaching other people. But when it comes to like writing the workouts for yourself, and this is why I asked her to write my program in the first place is that I knew I needed work on my lactate threshold and my tempo work. But those kinds of um, long tempos and like large, like big intervals, intervals over like a mile, uh, scare me. And I was afraid that if I wrote the workouts for myself, I would talk myself out of doing them thinking like, Oh, I can just negotiate this and do something different. But with but having someone else write your program takes the thought out of it. So I could just sit down. I was funny. I have these four pieces of paper that have my schedule for, from like August to the marathon in December. And they've gone with me everywhere. Like I have notes on them. Like they, I would cross stuff out and like, I would move workouts around here and there, but They've been like my security blanket for the last four months. And the other day, I, I was sitting there at my computer looking at it, and I'm like, I, I can't get rid of this piece of paper. <laughs> like, there's no way I would ever. I mean, I know I have it on the computer, but this hard copy of my training program over the last three, three, three four months has been with me everywhere I go. It's like my Linus blanket from, you know, Peanuts that I just carry everywhere, and it's got coffee stains and things like that on it. But, um, I'm gonna to have to come up with a new security blanket, I think, for the next two months and work on that program.
0: That's such a, it's such a wonderful image. I'm like imagining like the little book from um, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And he's like carrying it around uh-huh. like 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 yeah. through the desert and he's always peering through it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I really appreciate you coming on, Mariah. This has been so much fun to talk to you about it. It's certainly, you know, having a master's runner who has such a unique Running journey, it's just it really is a privilege to talk talk to you all about it. Congratulations and good luck moving forward over the next couple of months.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you, and I appreciate you having me on the show,
0: Mariah. Thank you again so much. Oh, what a great conversation, and just huge things ahead for her. Which for a masters runner, it's just so awesome to say because as someone who will be a masters runner, in Oh, man, let's see here. A little over a year, I'll be a Masters runner. It's nice to to talk to people who are kicking butt at that age. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you, the listener, for listening to this show. The best thing you can do for the podcast is to share it with the people around you, either in person or sharing on social media. And when you do that, it really warms my heart. Thank you so much for everybody for listening. Have a wonderful holiday season. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti from InPost Media. Also, thank you to MetaP for the music and his song, Evolution.